I hope that you will turn with me in a Bible to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 6. Our primary focus will be on chapter 7, but I want to begin by looking at some context. We're going through Hebrews chapter 11 and looking at the individuals named in the Hall of Faith, these individuals from whom we can learn so much. And we come now to Gideon, Gideon, and his story is told in Judges 6 through 8. And in Gideon, we see someone right there in the hall of faith. So his faith is real. It's saving faith. And yet, no one was more reluctant when God called him than Gideon. No one was slower to accept God's promises to him. He doubted. He questioned. He tested God time and time again. He asked for one sign after another. And it's for that reason that we have so much to learn from Gideon, because we can be the same way. Especially in times of trial and adversity. And this is where we find Israel in Judges 6. These people called the Midianites, these people that the Israelites were commanded to drive out and yet didn't, they have become an oppressive power over the Israelites. They're ransacking their farms, they're taking their livestock, and Gideon finds himself hiding. This man who has a reputation for being a great general, he's hiding. And so we read his story beginning at Judges 6, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abizarite where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian." The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And Gideon continues to make excuses and ask for one test after another. But notice how when God calls him and gives him this great task, he's hiding. He's not looking for God. He's not expecting any great task. And when God says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. His first response is not to say, wow, that's awesome. Thank you, Lord. No, it's, well, if that's true, then why is all this bad stuff happening? (laughs) Where are all these great deeds that our ancestors told us about? His first impulse is to doubt and to question and to argue, thereby revealing his sinful stubbornness. And I don't know about you, but I resonate with this. Okay, I hear your promise, God. You're with me. I've heard that. I, I believe that intellectually. But why is all this happening? Why are you bringing me through so much turmoil and difficulty and pain and hardship? 
Can you give me a sign to confirm this? This is Gideon. This is me, and this is you. And when we move into chapter 7, we're going to see the high point of Gideon's life. And what is so striking at the high point is that God is strengthening his faith, yes, but the way God strengthens his faith is to make him weak. And this is what we should expect today. Expect God to strengthen your faith in Christ by weakening your confidence in human ability. And the biblical word for that is the flesh. Expect God to weaken your confidence in the flesh so that your flesh, so that your human ability has no basis for boasting when it comes to God. This is saving faith. This is the kind of faith that we need. But we should expect our faith to be tested here. That's what we see in Gideon. God tests his faith. And if you put your trust in Christ, your faith will be tested and it will be for your good and it will be for God's glory. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to accept, accept that and to expect that? Well, let's read the account provided in Judges 7, and then we'll take a closer look and see what we can expect when we are tested. Judges 7, verse 1. Early in the morning, Jerub Baal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred of them drank with cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the three hundred, who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up! Go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Pura, and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels 
could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon! Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah near Zererah, as far as the border of Abel Moholah near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zaib. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zaib at the winepress of Zaib. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zaib to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. As we saw last week in the book of Judges, there is all kinds of chaos and violence and so much that is short of God's glory, short of his intentions for his creation, for his people. And yet, even in these dark, bleak, chaotic, violent times, the light of God's glory and grace is shining forth, and real saving faith is present. But in Gideon, we see how faith is tested. Even after Gideon had questioned God and asked for one sign after another, God tests him. And to understand what he's dealing with, so he starts out with 32,000 men. Now, that sounds like a lot until you can compare that to the numbers of the enemy. And we read in chapter 8 that they have at least 135,000 soldiers. Well, that changes the odds a little, doesn't it? 32,000 versus 135,000. 
But still, 32,000, that's a lot of soldiers. Maybe if they're well-trained, maybe if they have a high morale, maybe they can triumph. But God comes to Gideon and he says, you've got too many. You've got too many men. No, if you win this victory, then Israel might think, may think, well, our hand delivered us. We did this. And you might become puffed up and prideful and self-confident. And in the presence of God, he will not allow any flesh to boast. So he says, you've got too many. So he says, tell them, anyone who's trembling with fear is welcome to go back home. And all but 10,000 leave. Well, 10,000, I don't like those odds, but that's still a pretty good army, pretty good sized force. And then God comes to him again and says, there are still too many men. Still too many. You're still going to be prideful when you win. And I won't allow that. I will not share my glory with anyone. So thin them out. Go down to the stream. Anyone who drinks out of cupped hands will remain. All the others are welcome to go back home. And after this testing, this thinning out, there are 300 up against 135,000. How do you like those odds? So why does God do this? Why does God test Gideon's faith? And why should we expect God to test our faith? A few reasons. First, to make it real. To make it real. And we need this guidance from the Apostle Peter, the first Peter chapter one, verse six. And all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And listen to this. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. These various trials that are so disorienting and so painful when we're going through them are intended to make our faith real. And real saving faith will endure any trial or adversity. And if it gives up, then it was not faith at all. It was not genuine. It was some kind of vague intellectual belief. It was some mere optimism or wishful thinking. It was not saving faith. Saving faith will endure to the end. And it's genuineness, which is more precious than gold, refined in fire, will endure. And that's what God is doing in Gideon. Gideon, will you remain true to me when I reduce your great army all the way down to 300? Will you still trust me? Will you still follow through? Will you still obey? Or not? God tests the faith of his people to make it real. He also does it to make it last. And this is what we see in James Chapter 1, 
verse 2. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance or steadfastness. To make it last, it proves the genuineness of our faith and it makes it last. It will continue. It will persevere. Do you have faith that lasts or not? We all know there are so many who claim to have faith, who respond to a gospel invitation. Maybe they even join a church. They get baptized. They join a Bible study group. And then they drift. And they haven't darkened the door of a church days, weeks, years. Now, it's not for me to pronounce on their salvation, but true saving faith lasts. It has perseverance. This is a distinguishing characteristic of saving faith. Perseverance, steadfastness, especially in the midst of trials. This is a hard word, especially in these days when many people think that faithful church attendance is like at least once a month. That's probably good enough, right? The reality is, if you love God and you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to love His Word and you're going to love His people and you're going to want to be with His people where two or more are gathered in his name. He is present and you're going to want to be there. You don't want to miss out. No matter who's there or who isn't. This is why God tests our faith. To make it last. To show if it's real and to show if there's perseverance. But then there's a third reason. And that is to make it pure. Whenever we first come to faith in Christ, our faith is always mingled with our own sinful tendencies, our sinful habits, mingled with what Paul calls the old man, our sinful self that is corrupted by our own rebellion and sinfulness. We need our faith to be purified, to grow more mature. And this is what we see in James chapter 1. Verse 4, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Whenever the Holy Spirit brings about the new birth in someone, brings you to saving faith, no one is born a mature Christian. We all have so much more we need to learn, all of us. And this is this completing work, learning to rely more and more on God and his promises, and to rely less and less on the flesh, on our own human ability, on our own resources. We need this purifying work. At any given moment, we need God, the Holy Spirit, to purify our hearts, to sanctify our hearts, to show us areas where we're not walking by faith, 
to show us areas where we're not being faithful, to show us areas where we're questioning, we're doubting, where we're not letting go of our sinful tendencies. We need this, and this is what God does when he tests his people. You see in Gideon, just prior to this, this is the nature of Gideon's faith just prior to this. God's told him time and time again, Gideon, you're the one. You're the one I'm sending to deliver my people. You're the one I'm calling to lead my people against the Midianites. And just prior to this, one of the unforgettable signs that Gideon asked for, he says, God, okay, don't, don't be angry with me, but can you give me one more sign? I'm going to lay out a fleece, and in the morning, if the fleece is wet, but the, the ground is dry, then I'll believe you. And the Lord is so patient and so gracious with Gideon, he does it. And in the morning, Gideon wakes up, he takes the fleece, and he wrings it out, and there's water, and the ground is dry. You'd think that would be enough. I mean, how petty do you have to get? But he's not done yet. He says, okay, God, don't be angry with me, just, just one more, okay? How about if the ground is wet, but the fleece is dry? Then I'll believe. And God is so patient and so gracious, he does it again. And you see how Gideon's faith, just as ours can be, is so mixed with doubts and fears and stubbornness. We need to know that. So be prepared for God to test your faith, to purify your faith, to eliminate that pettiness and that stubbornness and that rebellion that's in your heart and in mine. That's why God tests the faith of his people. Now, how specifically does God test Gideon's faith? And how can we expect God to test our faith when we put our trust in Christ? He does it by reducing his resources. Reducing his resources. Cutting down the numbers time and time again. Now, for us, sometimes it can take the same form when we find ourselves in the minority. We find ourselves feeling left out or standing apart and no one honors Christ, no one loves Christ, no, no one trusts in his word, and we're the only ones in the room. Trust that God can use that to test your faith, to make it real, to purify it, to make it last, to build perseverance within you. Numbers in churches fluctuate. Sometimes it's overflowing, sometimes it's not. Through feast or famine, will you stay true to the Lord who promises to save you? Or will you be there if everybody else is there? Do you see the difference? Another way that God sometimes reduces our resources is when he takes away someone who is dear to us, a mentor, maybe a spiritual mentor. Maybe it's a grandparent or a parent, a close friend, a spouse, someone we were relying on, leaning on, and God is so gracious to give us these people. And then when he takes them away, it hurts. It hurts terribly. Trust that even in that pain, even in that loss, God is using that to wean you off of the flesh. 
Praise God you had that person. Thank Him every day. Don't forget that person. Rejoice in God for that person. But don't put your faith in that person. That's the difference. Saving faith is strengthened by trusting in God exclusively. And sometimes God brings us about by weakening our reliance on other people and other resources. Expect that. For God to take away a set of circumstances. Maybe he's taken away a job. Maybe he takes away some financial resources. Maybe he takes away some other prized possession. Whatever it is, expect God to refine and to purify your faith. Don't give up when all you have left is 300. Trust him through that. But God also tests Gideon's faith by revealing that God can use even the weakest of instruments to accomplish the mightiest acts. God can use the weakest of instruments to accomplish the mightiest of acts. Look at what he does with 300 people. They're not well armed. All they have are trumpets and torches in these jars. That's it. Because the Midianites have withheld weapons from them. And look at what God does. And there's such a striking example of this in the Gospel of John chapter 6. Verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? This is Jesus. Jesus says, hey, guys, how are we going to feed all these people? But notice this. He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. These 5,000 Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? And you know how the story goes. Jesus multiplies them. Look at what he does. And just five loaves of bread and two fish. Look at what God can do. See how Jesus points to himself and, and reveals that this power that we see in Gideon and delivering Gideon and the Israelites is manifest in his person, in the miracles that he performs, in his life. But ultimately, see how it is revealed in his death. Hear these words from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Literally, so that no flesh may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. 
Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God chooses to save his people using a cross. There's nothing that looks weaker in the eyes of the world than a cross. This is foolishness. That's what the world says. You expect me to believe that that man hanging there on that cross, a condemned, forsaken criminal, possesses the power to save? That he is the answer to what ails this world? That he is what everyone needs more than anything else? Oh yes, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This God who can use the weakest of instruments, the weakest of vessels, to accomplish the mightiest of acts. And that mighty act of saving his people, atoning for the sins of a wretch like me and a wretch like you. Do you see it? Do you appreciate it? Are you glorying in this? Or not? And then notice, God also tests him by withholding the details. Withholding the details. We may think, okay, God, got it. I, I'm, I'm with you. I'll do whatever you say. Just tell me kind of like when and how. Can you give me some more details and then I'll, I'll be glad to obey. Look at how much God withholds from him. He just tells him, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to use you. You are the one who is going to lead my people. Yeah, I know how many there are. I know there are 135,000 of them at least. I know they're swarming like locusts. I know that they're like the sand on the seashore. I see all that. I know all that. And I'm sending you. Leave the details to me. Can you trust God with the details? Can you still obey him when he doesn't tell you when or how? Don't let the details get in the way of obeying when you see the glory of what he can do in a weak instrument like the cross. But God doesn't just stand back and observe Gideon or observe us. Look at the help he provides. This is the same help that God can provide to us. God knows Gideon. He knows his frame. He knows how he's made. He knows just how weak and fragile he is and fearful he is. And he says, Gideon, if, if you are afraid to attack, this is verse 10, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. God is so kind and so gracious to us to give us these encouragements. Sometimes it's by sending a Pura with us so that we're not alone. We have a friend to go with us. But mainly it's in giving us a preview of what is to be, what is to come, what he's to do. He sends them out. Just go down to the camp and listen to what they're saying. Gauge their morale. I'm telling you, you'll be encouraged. When he goes down, he hears them talking, and they're already fearful. They've already heard his name, believe it or not. They're already aware that he's coming for them. And they're scared to death. God encourages us and helps us by giving us a preview of what is to come. So no, you don't have all the details. You don't know exactly how this is going to work out. But you have the promise 
that in Christ your sins are atoned for, they're paid for, that Christ is your substitute, that as far as the east is from the west, so he has removed your sins. You have the promise that this same Christ will return to this earth to establish his kingdom forever. Destroy all enemies and any threat to his power. You have that promise. No, you don't know when. You don't know exactly how, but it's going to happen. Is that enough for you? Here's the preview. You want the preview? Read his word and read promise after promise after promise. And how do we know that we pass this test, that we're truly trusting? Look at Gideon's response. In verse 15, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He bowed down and worshipped. Worship, adoration of God, standing in awe of who he is and all he has done and can do and will do. This is the sign that you're truly trusting in him and not in flesh. And there's this bold action. Let's go. Let's go. Grab a trumpet. Grab a torch. Surround them. And look at what a rout this battle ends up being. It's not much of a battle at all. The Israelites don't even really have to lift a finger. They just have to shout, show their torches, and God sends panic and chaos into the Midianite camp. And it's dark, and they just start slashing at one another. Only God could do this. This seems crazy from a human standpoint. And yet this is how God accomplishes his purpose because no one else can get any credit or glory for this, can they? Who can boast on the other side of this victory? No one. No one. And here's where this leaves us. Expect God to strengthen you by reminding you of how weak you are. We all live under the delusion that we're strong. And we all want to be strong. And we all revel in glory and strength, human strength, human valor. But one way or another, God will disabuse us of that delusion. Whether it's when we get old and our bodies fail us, or when we're afflicted by some disease, or when it's some other form of adversity brought into our life, one way or another, God will disabuse us of our delusions of grandeur. And it will be for our good and for his glory when he does so. I'll leave you with 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. The Apostle Paul says, he has all kinds of reasons for wanting to boast because of the revelations that have been given to him, all the great things the intimacy of his communion with God. And yet, in the midst of that, so that he won't get too conceited and prideful, a thorn in the flesh is given to him, a messenger of Satan to torment him. And he prays to God three times, take it away, please. And what is God's response? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power 
may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Can you confess that joyfully today? When I am weak, then I am strong because God's grace is sufficient for me. No matter how numerous the Midianites are, no matter how overwhelming the trials may appear in my sight, His grace has been given to me and His grace is sufficient. And I'm going to trust in Him. I'm going to lean on Him. I'm going to rely on Him. Come what may. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. May that be what we hear from the Lord today as well, as we go to him in prayer. Father, we confess that we are so prone to doubt you, to doubt your promises to doubt your word. We confess that, that we always seem to want more, more signs, more evidence, more confirmation, more assurance. And I pray today that you would reassure us by the power of your grace. That you would remind us that it is by grace we are saved through faith, and this is not of ourselves. This is your free gift to sinners like us. And I pray, Father, that we would receive the gift today, maybe for the first time, maybe to renew our faith in you and in your promises. And I pray, Father, that we would enjoy the sweetness of communion with you, the sweetness of taking you at your word and trusting you through any trial or any tribulation, come what may. For I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.